You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover, Jeff Brooker, and Rebecca Brophy as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, welcome to Deal by Deal, an independent sponsor podcast by McGuire Woods. Today, we're lucky to have with us Scott Fisher, an experienced independent sponsor with Pleasant Bay Capital Partners. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Scott, so I know you've been in, in the independent sponsor industry for quite a while. Can you tell us about your firm and what your focus is and what your investment criteria is? Sure. So we set up Pleasant Bay probably about nine years ago now. I mean, I can get into my background before that because I was doing independent sponsor work even before we were calling it that. But we set up the firm about nine years ago and you know, we're really focused on lower, lower middle market businesses. So these are companies, I would say, in the, the two to 10 million of EBITDA range. And typically what we see and participate in is mostly, I would say, in the two to seven million of EBITDA range. So fairly small companies. And you know, we've taken the approach of really trying to specialize. And so our focus area is primarily in healthcare and life sciences. That's 75, 80% of what we do with the balance being really tech services and, and traditional business services. But you know, both myself and my partner, James, pretty deep backgrounds in healthcare and life sciences. And so we've taken that approach with you know, where we try to spend our money and where we think we can make a difference. Sure. So most of the independent sponsors I think we work with are newer to the game than you are. I think most of the folks that we're working with have been doing this for five years or less, typically. And it sounds like you've been doing it for, for quite some time. What specifically is your background and then how did you get involved in independent sponsor the independent sponsor world and how long have you been doing it? You know, I've probably been doing it now 15 plus years. Yeah, I started out my career in the mid 90s in private equity and you know, I've been in the business in one form or another throughout my career. I spent a few years post business school actually within portfolio companies, more on the operating side. And then when I came back out full circle onto the investment side, just by happenstance, I, I met a guy down in Connecticut, and he was looking to, to kind of do deals on a one-off basis. And we got together and found a, a wealthy individual who was a, a healthcare entrepreneur, and he backed us and kind of put us into business. And so we did six or seven deals over the course of probably eight years, uh, all in, in healthcare under that shingle, and then ended up starting Pleasant Bay, like I said, about nine years ago. So it really started a little bit just by happenstance and we got one deal done and that led to the next and led to the next. And over time, it just, I guess, became a bit of a way of life. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the successful independent sponsors are really delivering true value to both their seller as well as their capital provider. So you've been doing this for a long time. So obviously you are doing that. Why should a seller think about working with and transacting with Pleasant Bay? You know, I think the big part of it is that vertical focus that we've taken. You know, that's something that specifically we think is important, and we think sellers value that. We understand the sector that they're in. We understand their business. 
And I think we can convince them that we can be helpful post-close. And I don't mean just in the, the typical areas of strategy and governance and, and building the team, but really corporate development, opening doors, helping with sales and winning business and driving revenue. And so I think a lot of that resonates with the sellers. I think the other thing that we bring to the table, having spent so much time in and around healthcare, is just a network of partners. They could be co-investors with us. They could be folks we bring onto the management team. It could be folks we bring onto the board. But those are all very interesting, value-added people that we can tap into our network. Again, that's, I think, compelling for sellers. And, and then probably the third piece is we like to think we're just good people to do business with. I continue to be amazed by how many companies and sellers that, that we meet that have had just a, a terrible experience with private equity. And so I think being responsive and, and doing what you tell people you're going to do and, and being fair in how you deal with them is important to us. And that seems to also resonate with sellers. So I think all of that is the appeal that we've had over time. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's it sounds like a lot of that, those same value drivers would be important for the capital providers. Is there anything kind of additional you think that the you're bringing to the capital providers or even just the way you kind of communicate and interface between the seller and the capital provider? I think you're spot on, Jeff. I mean, I think those same things are what I believe the, the capital providers that we work with value. I think they look to us because we do have deep sector expertise and a lot of these folks you know, don't have that. And, and as you know, healthcare is a is a tricky field. And if you haven't spent a lot of time in it, it can be a, a little bit of a nerve-wracking place to invest. So I think that's important. And at the end of the day, you know, we are bringing value and able to provide value post-close. And I think that's what a lot of capital providers are looking for. So all those things are important. Again, I think we're fairly user-friendly guys to work with. And I think we've all gotten to the point in our careers where life's too short to work with people you don't you don't like and, and don't get along well with. And so I think we, we tend to be pretty responsive folks that work hard and do what we say we're going to do. I know at McGuire Wood, frequently trying to play matchmaker between independent sponsors and capital providers. What kinds of capital providers do you think are the best fits for Pleasant Bay when you're, when you're looking to fund a deal? For us, you know, we tend to look for groups that view this relationship as, as a partnership. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, by defining what it's not. I think there are certain capital providers that say, bring us a deal and that's great. We'll provide the capital and we'll show up at a quarterly board meeting and you know, tell us if things don't work out. And otherwise, they're pretty hands-off and they want the sponsor to you can kind of do everything and they're going to be in the background. And so that, that's fine for some people. I think we enjoy groups that want to be maybe a little bit more active and, and have you know, more of a, a vested interest in, in the underlying business and are going to be on the board and be active and play a participating role. They're, they're all still looking to us, obviously, to, to be the lead and, and to be the first call from management and be the eyes and ears on the deal. But I think we do like firms that are going to be a little bit more interactive in the lifespan of the investment. Sure, sure. Switching gears a little bit then, so you've been doing this a long time, and I know a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast don't have as much experience as, as you do in the independent sponsor world. I'd like to switch gears and talk to about deal sourcing a little bit, because I think the deal sourcing and the capital raising from where I sit 
seem to be the most challenging pieces of the deal process for the independent sponsor. How do you go about sourcing your deals typically? You know, there's no silver bullet, unfortunately. You know, I think we do a lot of the same things that others do in terms of, I would call it the reactive part of the process, which is tapping into our contacts and bankers and brokers and other folks that that can bring us opportunities. And so that's obviously a big part of what we do. And and that's kind of the, the way the machine works. But the piece that we've had a lot of success with, and we try to spend at least kind of a third of our time focused on is more proactive, thematic-based outreach. And so that's really starting with an investment thesis and then going out and cold calling companies and and turning over a lot of stones to try to find businesses. And and oftentimes we're doing that in conjunction with an operator or, or with a team. And so I spend a good chunk of my personal bandwidth just trying to cultivate relationships with the healthcare operators. And when I can, and and it's hard, the the timing doesn't always work out, the stars don't always align, but when I can, it's great to to find an operator and put together a thesis and then kind of shoulder to shoulder go out and and call companies and engage with sellers. And that's a great way, obviously, to find proprietary situations. And and it's a great way to win some, some trust and make some good headway with sellers, because I think they like not just talking to a finance guy like myself, but talking to somebody that can talk their language and has been in the operating trenches. And so some of those proactive efforts for us have paid off over time. Like I said, the stars don't always align, so it's hard to do that. But when you can do it, it, it pays off. Sure. A good bedside manner is critical from what I've seen in being successful in this. Do you have any advice for first time or kind of early stage? independent sponsors who are looking for deals, either you know things that they really should be thinking about doing, or maybe also on the flip side, things that you've learned along the way don't really work that well, and you, maybe you've spent some time on and wasted time that you've kind of learned not to do. You know, I think this is probably a little bit self-serving because we've <laughs> we've taken this approach ourselves, but I do think specialization is important and getting more important. There's more and more investors out there. There are more and more independent sponsors. It's just you know hard to be a generalist and differentiate yourself. So if you have a background in some area where you've had a lot of success and you've had a lot of experience, that's probably a good, a good place to focus your energy and, and try to go deep in those particular areas. I just think that's important to differentiate yourself. I think in terms of things that probably haven't worked is in our early days, probably chase some some larger transactions. And I think picking and choosing your spots where you're going to have a higher probability of success is important. So oftentimes, it's easy to get enamored with a company and a nice business. But I do think as, as an independent sponsor, chasing after some of those when you know they're going to be competitive situations maybe isn't the best use of your time. Maybe starting smaller if you're new to the game and, and trying to get a couple of Deals under your belt and a couple of smaller transactions is probably going to be a better use of time. Yeah, that makes sense. So switching to the other kind of problematic place that I find for some independent sponsors is the capital raise process. So it's super common to see independent sponsors get a deal under LOI with their target, and then it really becomes a scramble 
to get capital. And with that LOI, it almost invariably comes with an exclusivity provision that has a pretty limited clock, and that clock starts to run as soon as as folks sign up the LOI. How do you handle raising capital under that time pressure? I guess I'd start by saying I think we have a a pretty broad collection of, of capital providers that we've gotten to know over the years, and I think we not only have a feel for the types of deals they're going to like and are going to embrace, but also how they like to operate. And I think we gravitate towards folks that aren't afraid maybe to get pulled in a little bit earlier. And candidly, I feel like more and more groups want to get pulled in a little bit earlier. So we'll typically start to socialize some of these opportunities pre-LOI. And we won't provide a ton of information, but we like to provide enough information where people can start to get up the curve and be educated on an opportunity so that if and when we do get it signed up to a letter of intent, you've got a handful of groups that aren't starting from a standstill. And you need to be respectful of people's time, obviously, and you don't want them to get spun up and and do a bunch of work before you know whether or not it's going to be actionable. But like I said, we we know these groups well, and we'll we'll give them kind of a preview of coming attractions, and that allows us to to hit the ground running once we get signed up. Sure. And and how long did it take you before you've been doing this for a while? How long did it take you to kind of build up that Rolodex of capital providers? We're still doing it. You know, we still spend a good chunk of our time making sure we're meeting new groups and being mindful of groups that we've known for a long time that maybe we haven't touched base with and making sure we're current on people and what areas they want to see deals in. And so that's just, uh, again, when I think about the bandwidth and however many hours in a week I'm working and how I carve that up, a big part of that is is making sure I'm kind of cultivating those capital provider relationships. So it certainly takes a, a couple of years to get a good critical mass, I would say, but it's just an, it's an ongoing part of the process and an ongoing part of being an independent sponsor to to make sure you're being mindful of, of the, those groups of investors and being smart about who you're bringing opportunities to. Yeah, and have you have you tried to focus on single check writer kind of capital providers, or have you had deals where you've cobbled together? a group of several capital providers. I know there's there's kind of advantages and disadvantages to each approach. I think we've done all, all of the above, Jeff. I mean, we've certainly done one-stop deals where we've gone to one capital provider and they've provided all the equity that, that we don't speak for as well as debt. And we've gone in other deals where maybe a couple of those groups we've clubbed together and there have been others where we've worked with a family office or an institutional equity guy and brought in third-party debt alongside of it. And we've done smaller deals where we've passed the hat amongst a group of uh, high net worth individuals slash friends of the firm and cobbled together a syndicate of equity that way. So it really depends on on the the type of deal, the size of the deal, but we've, we've done it all different ways. So the way I typically think about that is if you've got a single check writer, they're more likely to want control in terms of board control and and negative controls, et cetera. And a lot of times, if you have a private equity fund, the the economics can be a little tougher. They can they'll negotiate pretty aggressively on economics. 
Whereas if you do, uh, but the, the flip side of that is you've got one capital provider, the risk of not closing because they don't bring the money, you know, or one, one of the, the capital providers, you know, you only have one that shows up, doesn't make it all the way to the closing is less. So you've got kind of higher certainty of close, but you're sacrificing some in terms of economics and control. You know, on the flip side, if you are passing the hat around, no one investor has enough clout really to get control or to push you around on economics. But then you run that risk of if you have several capital providers and one or more don't show up to closing, you now have a hole in your funds flow that you may need to scramble to fill. And so there's a little bit more execution risk. That's the way I kind of think of the trade-off between the, the one and the other. Do you find that that plays out? Do you think that's, that's valid or is your experience different? I think that's right. Certainly, if you are going more the, the one-check, bigger institutional partner, they are going to probably squeeze you more on, on economics. But I think my personal bias is, in all cases, certainty of close is probably paramount. And you know, I think the economics will take care of themselves, but, but getting your deal done and getting it done with the right partner, right? It, it's not just the right partner fit-wise, personality-wise, and, and things like that, but are they the right partner for that particular type of business or whatever stage that business might be at. So I think finding the right partner and having the, the certainty to close for, for me takes precedence. You know, the economics will be there and, and maybe you get nicked a little bit around the edges, but I think the other stuff's more important. Yeah. And and how easy is it for you to feel good and like you've got the right capital partner early in the process? Does that is that usually evident early on, or is that a decision that tends to not reveal the answer until you, you are somewhere in the lifespan of the investment? It's a good question, and, and it's a mistake that, candidly, I, I've made earlier on in, in doing this, and hopefully have finally learned from those earlier mistakes. But I, I think, again, I've worked with a number of these groups, and if we haven't done a transaction, we certainly looked at a lot of transactions with a lot of different groups. And so I think I have a, a good set of folks that I kind of know what I'm going to get out of. And, and so I feel pretty good going into it. Thankfully, in, in my more recent deals, I haven't had any negative surprises, which wasn't always the case. But I think, again, that's just a, a question of learning from your, your mistakes earlier in your career and then just building that Rolodex of, of folks that you know you want to work with and you, you know will be good partners. Yeah, I've seen surprises both ways. So I was just curious from your seat, you know, when are you, when do you feel right about the relationship? So flipping over then to, to economics, I know is always one of the topics that these sponsors love to talk about. And one of the questions that I get, you know, because I see a lot of deals and people always ask me, you know, what is market and is what I'm, you know, or they'll present a package to me and say, is this market? Do you think there really is that that market exists for independent sponsor economics, or do you think each deal is really is unique and needs to be approached as its own transaction? I guess I'll say yes to yes to both. I mean, I think there is a general set of guardrails that most of these deals seem to fall within. Yet each one is different because I think your your capital provider partner. Each one has different hot buttons, so they may have more energy around the promote than they do with the management fee, or more energy around the closing fee than the 
than the carry. So everyone's a little bit different, which is why each deal ends up looking a little bit different. But I do think, you know, there's kind of a, a reasonably wide fairway that most of the terms tend to fall somewhere on that fairway. Sure, sure. Do you think there's a single greatest driving force for the economics that an independent sponsor can get in a deal? You know, one of the ways I always think about it is if you've got, if you have a deal that should trade at 8x and you get it under LOI for 6x, well, now you've just carved out a lot of space for yourself for economics. Whereas if you're paying 8x for that deal, it's a lot harder for the capital provider to pay you a lot for that deal. I always think of that as the main driving force in my mind, but there's a lot of other potential factors, right? Like the growth potential of the company, types of capital providers you're looking at, how much competition you can generate. What do you think are the real driving forces for an independent sponsor when he's got his deal under LOI and he's thinking about how much leverage, how much juice do I have here to to ask for a, a, a really good package? What What should you be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, there's probably three main ones. And number one is the one you hit on, which is price. I mean, if you're delivering something at a below market multiple, that's great. And that's going to be looked favorably upon when economics are being discussed. Related to that, no surprise, is it a proprietary deal? If you're bringing a deal to somebody that they haven't seen, that hasn't been shopped, or at least hasn't been widely shopped, that also, I think, helps that equation. And then I think the third thing is just convincing your partner, your capital provider partner, that that you are bringing something that's value add to the table beyond the transaction. You know, are you bringing an operator to the table? Are you bringing some customer relationship that's going to drive revenue in the first couple of years post close? Anything that you can demonstrate that's value you're bringing above and beyond the transaction helps the equation as well. So for me, those are kind of the three pieces that, that I try to try to use those three levers and, and push and pull on those to, to help our cause. Yeah, that's super helpful. Kind of in that same vein, folks will ask me a lot, you know, am I asking for too much or too little? Which is always a hard question probably for anybody to answer. And I ask folks, really, I think, to model out using a financial model, different fee scenarios, fee and carry scenarios, and try to see, you know, under what you're asking for, what do those returns look like to you? And conversely, very importantly, what do they look like for the capital provider? Is what you're asking for under a reasonable set of assumptions, is it attractive to them? Is it compelling for them to invest? And some sponsors, it seems like hadn't really thought of doing that in the the level of detail that we typically recommend. How do you typically go about determining, you know, am I asking for too much? Am I asking for too little? And how do I, and, and modeling out what's kind of the right numbers to ask for and to negotiate around? You definitely have to do that because your capital provider is going to be doing the same thing, right? So they're going to be looking at their models and, and their returns, and they're going to be factoring in the economic piece that they've got to give up. And so, you know, you better be doing it yourself because you're going to need to, to appreciate their perspective and, and how they're thinking about things. But at the end of the day, I think folks are, are looking to underwrite things to, to certain, you know, ROIs and certain IRRs. And you need to be comfortable that there is a forecast model that everyone collectively believes in that 
still allows them to hit their returns, even carving out the the economics for you. And if it if it's tight, then you might have to think about scaling back your your economics to get the deal done. But I think in general, <laughs> people tend to put fairly rosy forecasts out there, and there may be a this uh, misalignment or a, a more aggressive set of assumptions coming from guys in our seat as independent sponsors than our partners, and and so you just need to to make sure you're you're all on the same page and kind of aligned around what a, a realistic return is, and the economics will kind of spill out of that. Is that usually you know is it easy to read that capital provider? Is it you know is it usually they are disagreeing with your forecast as a matter of negotiation, or do you find that the forecast is easy to align on and the numbers are harder to align on? I think there is a little bit of alignment that has to happen just around how fast is the business going to grow, how strong are the margins going to be, what's the right multiple on exit. So that's probably the easier piece to, to get aligned on. And then what's a fair return for them and for you is probably the, the trickier piece. I think you know, capital providers probably are, are underwriting maybe to a, to a different number than they might admit in a negotiation with an independent sponsor. And so they're going to want their, you know, their 3x return and their you know, 25%, 30% IRR, but that may not be the, the case they're, they're underwriting to, to their LPs. But at the end of the day, there has to be you know, enough downside protection, including whatever economics the independent sponsor is taking to, to get to whatever that return is. And, and that's why oftentimes you see the, the promote structured in a, in a performance-based kind of tiered scenario because everybody's, everybody's aligned. If you're delivering a high return, you're going to get more juice. And if you don't and they're not hitting their thresholds, you're, you're going to get less juice. Yeah, we, we almost always see the, those returns be tiered over a series of hurdles. How do you see sponsor economics changing over the next few years based on anything you're seeing in the market today? Do you think it will or do you think it, it won't change? I don't think so. I mean, it seems to be working for, for both parties today, at least in the deals that I'm seeing. I haven't seen in the situations we've been involved with a dramatic change over, over the past five, 10 years in terms of how the economics are getting cut up. I mean, you can only really slice and dice it so many ways. I don't see a, a seismic change here in, in how these deals get, get structured, at least nothing that's, that's at our horizon. Sure. Do you think if we go into, you know, times have been good for the past several years in M&A, we go into a downturn, what kinds of pressures do you think that'll put on independent sponsors who are who are looking to stay in the in the independent sponsor world more skin in the game i'm always surprised by hearing about other deals where you know folks are taking a lot of their closing fee and not putting into the deal or or not even writing you know personal checks on top of their closing fees i mean we pretty much roll everything into every deal and we write outside checks on top of that and i think that seems to resonate with a lot of our Capital provider partners, but I'm I'm surprised that other people aren't having as much skin into some of these deals, and so that's probably the piece that I think would would change if uh, if things kind of turn down and aren't quite as rosy. That there may be more asks to put additional skin into these deals. Wrapping up here, 
once again, there you know, there's a lot of folks that are just getting started here or have just been doing this for a few years. What are the most valuable lessons you've learned in your experience as an independent sponsor that, that you would pass along to folks, kind of the, the next generation looking to make a, a career out of this? You know, I kind of touched on it before, Jeff, but I think I'll come back to just people. As long as I've been doing this, I know it sounds pretty basic, but success in these deals always comes down to people, regardless of how great the business model may be, and whether it's the management team you're backing, it's the capital partner that you're working with. I think just surround yourself with good people, people that, that you trust, that you want to work with. And that's going to get you through the good times and, and the bad times because you know, these deals don't always go on a straight line and, and you need somebody that's going to ride with you through the ups and downs. And so just having good people both on, on the companies you're backing and, and the folks that are around the, the boardroom table, I think, is, is just critical. And sometimes we lose sight of that because you get enamored with a, with a business. But at the end of the day, these things uh, time and time again seem to come back to people. <laughs> Well, Scott, we, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come visit with us and give us the benefit of, of some of your insights from your experience in the independent sponsor world. So thank you for coming on and best of luck to you in the future. Yeah, Jeff, appreciate you uh, having us and uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Jeff Brooker. I'd like to start another segment of our Deal by Deal podcast. And this one we're, we're very excited about. McGuire Woods is conducting what we believe is going to be the largest independent sponsor transaction deal study ever conducted by anyone. So it's our 2020 independent sponsor deal study. It covers 287 independent sponsor deals closed over the years 2018 to 2020, primarily enterprise values between 10 and 75 million. But those of you that see the survey, it goes both below 10 million and substantially above 10 million. But the, the middle of the bell curve is, is right around there. It's across a wide variety of industries. And so we really do think that this is going to be a, a meaningful set of data for folks who are transacting in the independent sponsor space. We'll give them a lot of information about what other deals are doing and you know hopefully you know that elusive question what is market i've got greg hover here with me greg and i are co-chairing the study and we'd like to chat with you about a few of the points that we thought were interesting great thanks for having me on this is greg hover i'm a partner in the chicago office of mcguire woods in the private equity group and as jeff mentioned co-chairing the independent sponsor deal survey. With respect to the rollout uh, of the survey, as Jeff alluded to, the plan is that the full survey is going to be rolled out at our independent sponsor conference that's going to be held in Dallas in mid-October. If you need information on that, definitely check the McGuire Woods website, and we'll try to include it in our show notes as well. So Jeff and I and others will be having a panel at the conference that will discuss the findings of the survey. And we'll also have the full breakdown with all the relevant data for our attendees and for those that have contributed to this survey. And, and again, we hope it is the market standard here. In the interim between now and October, 
we're going to be rolling out some additional thought leadership about findings with respect to the survey, observations. And Jeff and I, on this podcast, hope to talk about a couple of those initial observations. And just, you know, rounding out high-level description of the survey, Jeff talked about the deal size. When we're talking about the target companies that were involved in the survey, they range from manufacturing to business services and all, all different industries. In addition, all types of equity capital providers, the, the most common type of equity capital provider covered in the survey is a family office slash high net worth individual, but also covering MES equity providers and, and PE control buyout funds. So a really good cross-section of the types of deals that, that independent sponsors are out there doing. And so now, Jeff, do you want to cover a couple of the interesting data points that we've started to uncover as we dig through the data? Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks, Greg. There's there's so much data here. We had about 35, I think, questions in the survey and really tried to dig in to ask pretty granular questions to try to get the best set of data we could. But a few things that, that kind of jumped out at us as just on an initial pass through this, this data, we picked out three things to, to chat about here. One, we're asked about frequently, you know, what is market on promotes? And that's a detailed question that requires, I think, a, a pretty extensive discussion. But one of the things that you've got to think about when you're structuring a promote and thinking about a promote is, is whether that promote has catch-ups. And I was a bit surprised. I thought that data would come out kind of about 50-50, that there'd be catch-ups some of the time, but some of the time there wouldn't. And it really did come out with about 75% of the time, the responses came back that the promote did have a catch-up. And for those of you that don't know, that a catch-up is just every time you hit a hurdle in the promote that the catch-up allows the independent sponsor to look back typically to dollar one of profit and step up to the higher sharing percentage that that independent sponsor is entitled to by virtue of hitting the hurdle, the applicable hurdle. And so 75%, I know, Greg, your thoughts, I I was thinking 50-50, 75 surprised me. Yeah, I I agree. It's a negotiated point, one that I've been seeing our independent sponsor clients winning, but to the extent of 75% was, was interesting to me. And, you know, as you alluded to, these are points that maybe at the term sheet stage, one could gloss over a catch-up perhaps, but for anyone that's ever modeled out these waterfalls in an Excel knows that these catch-ups can be very powerful depending upon where you land in the, in the waterfall and the exit as far as total enterprise value. So an important point to include at the LOI stage. And again, yeah, very interesting that they were as common as the data shows. Yeah, and then so second point, also an important term sheet point that moves the needle, you know, not as much as the catch-up, but it, it's certainly important and does move the needle is, is the treatment of tax distributions. And so most of these independent sponsor investments are structured as partnerships. And so that means for tax purposes, there is typically going to be tax distributions for when the, a member is allocated profit and therefore has tax liability, but does not have distributions 
to pay that tax liability. And so to avoid you know, what you often would hear of as dry income or phantom income, the question always comes up in these deals, well, do tax distributions count toward my hurdles and toward my promote? And that one, it looks like the data is coming out about 50-50 there. The responses are, are roughly even. Looks like no is maybe a little bit ahead, but it is very close. And so that one I thought was interesting as well, because that's a, that's a common provision that comes up kind of in the term sheet that clients frequently gloss over or don't think about, but it does move the needle, especially if it's going to be a profitable company with a lot of tax dollars flowing out the door to the IRS. Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, it shows that it, it's an area that is negotiated and is pliable and can be agreed one way or another on a deal-by-deal basis. I think there's some constituents out there on either side of the debate that take a very hard line and, and firm view on it, but I think the data is showing that it's more negotiable than, than some might purport. So I thought that was interesting as well. Another, I, I guess the final of our three initial observations. And, and you get the big uh, sexy one, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. In, in, and so this is on management fees. And it's interesting to us how consistent the data was, I guess. It was not a shocker, but as we look at management fees, so here we're talking about the sort of pillar of independent sponsor economics that is the ongoing fees that are paid by the operating company to the independent sponsor. What are those fees? What are they based on? The data here is shows that the vast majority of these fees are, it's, it's a EBITDA-based fee. It's not a straight-line number that's the same no matter what. It's a fee that adjusts based on EBITDA, and 5% is the overwhelming number that it's pegged to, 5% of EBITDA. There are floors and there are caps, but it was just interesting. I mean, I think Jeff and I would both if asked, would shoot from the hip and would always say like 5% of EBITDA is, is what we see the most. But again, having a response that is this consistent in the data was cool, especially as it you know covers 290 some odd deals. So I think the answer to the question of what's market on management fees, the data is showing us is 5% of EBITDA. Yeah, that, I thought that really was interesting. The I had thought, you know, two to five percent was kind of the playing field. And I think it's it is the playing field for what is market in a closing fee, but I was surprised that it, it's looking roughly two thirds of the responses came back saying, you know, five percent. And then a meaningful sliver of the other one third was even was six percent or greater, which I don't see very much, although sometimes I do see it. That data came back, I think, a little bit richer toward the independent sponsor than than even we had expected it to. Yeah, and I should mention the lawyerly caveat that you know every deal is different, and you've got to you need to match up these fees together with the floors and the caps and the closing fees, et cetera, and you get kind of a unique package for every deal. But data says was it what it says at the end of the day. So, Jeff, I don't know if there's any final comments. Uh, but we hope that the audience found this interesting, a little preview of what's to come. And we, we are looking forward to rolling out this survey over the next couple months and then presenting it in October at the, uh, at the conference. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. This is 
there's so much data. There's so many interesting findings in here. I'm really excited to roll it out and to, to chat about it at the conference and and really to use it to to help our clients as well when they are trying to understand, you know, what what are other folks typically getting in their deals. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Deal by Deal next month. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.